1: Alex, I have some news for you. Uh, what's that? Unfortunately for you and for the listeners, I have to break live on the podcast that this is my uh, my last episode
2: as co-host. Uh, Okay. Shocking way to, to break this to me. I'm yes, indeed. I going. am
1: instead going to be transitioning
2: into the role of
1: tipping pitches consultant. And oh. I will be making three times as much money on the podcast to do straight up no work. That's...
2: Well... Like Theo Epstein before me, (laughs) I'm taking cues, you know? It's a a good time. It's a good time. Three times zero is still zero. Wow. Wow.
1: Wow. (laughs) Just opening the books to our listeners. (laughs) Just right here on the show without my permission. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Theo Epstein, baseball consultant in chief. It's
1: funny because like when he stepped down from the cubs he was like here's the job that i want i want to talk about baseball and how it can be better and then like a couple months later other shoe drops and rob
2: manfred's like hey we'll pay you yeah exactly stick
1: around the world so it doesn't seem like you're not here
2: yes yeah exactly i mean and you know i think theo has his ideas about he has not been shy about saying what he thinks baseball needs and i'm sure shift yeah honestly you know need more action um you got to put the you know he keeps saying put the players athleticism front and center which like i, I got to be honest i don't quite know what that means yeah, like i watch a baseball what you game think that means like what does that mean right, like i watch a baseball game and they are some of the most athletic humans on the planet <laughs> like it's pretty front and center as it is yeah i think i mean
1: not that i think that i can particularly get a window into theo epstein's mind necessarily but i think that probably what he means is like more bang bang plays more steals more this more that that kind of stuff like more athleticism in the outfield will lead to more impressive catches and things of that nature yeah i don't know if that's like at this point i don't know if that's the type of thing that you can change quickly or if you just have to incentivize that type of thing from the youth level and hope that it makes its way all the way up through mlb and obviously, there are a lot of factors about exclusionary practices that baseball has along that journey.
2: yeah i mean we I think we said this when Thea stepped down from the Cubs originally, right? but like he's saying all of these things out of one side of his mouth and out of the other side of his mouth, he's creating the uh environment for this sort of thing. you know it's the Eric Andre meme where you know you shoot players' athleticism, and you say, you know, why would baseball do this <laughs> like yeah yeah
1: I, I think that's a little bit unfair to put on theo but you're right it's like the the harvard front office type shoots baseball's athleticism right. yes and exactly. Then, but i think that i think that no, i don't think theo intention. epstein that personally was like no athleticism in baseball <laughs> not absolutely no athleticism um okay well we, we've checked that box of talking about theo we even mentioned rob Manfred already uh We're going to check another box, which is we're going to spend an hour talking about labor. Yeah. Uh, And we are going to be joined by the inimitable Michael Bauman, staff writer uh, at The Ringer. And longtime listeners will remember that Michael joined us last year around this time. Um, You know, we're about like midway through the off-season if this was going to be a normal off-season. And we thought it's good to check in with the state of labor in a generic, large-scale, cosmic sense, zoomed out you know 50,000 foot view about how owners are responding to the pandemic and how players are organizing better than they ever have. So this conversation was really interesting. We know that if you like this podcast that you will enjoy this. If you want more context going into this podcast, I would suggest maybe even going back and listening to last year's um just to kind of frame where we were 365 days ago or thereabouts and where we've ended up now. Um anything else to add before we get to our conversation with michael bauman alex
2: no but uh get your bingo cards out this one this one checks all of the boxes we've got it all here folks i think we do we've mentioned the red scare like 10 minutes in so <laughs> <laughs> okay uh
1: without further ado we're going to get to our conversation with michael bauman but first i am bobby wagner i am alex basley and you are listening to tipping pitches All right, Alex, we are so happy to be joined, with the wonderful Michael Bauman, for the second annual State of Labor in Baseball. <laughs> Hello, Michael Bauman.
0: You weren't that happy when we were talking about this before. It sounded like we were so obligated to talk to...
1: <laughs> well, you made a joke Michael that Bauman. we didn't even want to talk to you, but we were so... We were pleasured to be talking to you. Maybe I was just in a worse mood. Maybe I was just more tired.
0: I think it's you know? just you don't like me very much. I'm, Alex is the one who who really uh, values my opinion here.
1: Yeah, he's he was threatening to walk out unless I allowed you to come on the podcast again <laughs> for a second action, straight year. Yeah. Um. It's nice to see you. So much has happened in in baseball in the world since the last time we spoke. But first, I kind of want to get your feeling on covering the entire 2020 season. You were obviously writing about it for the Ringer dot com, and I imagined felt personally conflicted about many a thing that went on. With a little bit of hindsight, now that we've been in the, the doldrums of the offseason for quite a while, um, what what do you feel about what you just witnessed and covered and thought intelligently about in twenty
0: twenty? Um, it was weird. I twenty 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 I, I think was actually the first time, first season since I started doing this uh, full time that I didn't actually go to a baseball game because it was you know all the um restrictions just made it not worth my while and like that was a weird thing to to experience um i don't know i was it was a, a an escalating series of surprises of like what the actual priorities of the of the sport and of the society are and i think that you know going into the season um you know i wrote a lot about how uneasy i was in in being complicit in this like i did a i remember doing a hit on the Uh, Cespedus barbecue show like maybe a month before the season started, like asking quote unquote big questions about what we're, you know, how we're going to cover this, you know, how we're going to juxtapose the, uh, um, the return of the sport that like we all love and we all make our livelihoods covering with like profound moral ambivalence. And frankly, like, I don't know, like that, that feeling of shock and outrage. Like I just couldn't sustain it for the entire season. I think like yeah. the, the me of may would have been disappointed in, in the me of November, looking back, like just sort of going along, accepting that this is the, the, the way that things operate. But you know, I'm just, we just had the, the college football playoff end and, you know, lots of, I mean, you talk about a fraud opening, um, college football made made baseball look downright organized and and uh, um, and thoughtful and, and moral in the way that they went about this season and We're less like, than
1: five like, minutes into the potties are you trying to derail it and turn it into a college football conversation
0: <laughs> Well I'm, I'm coming to a point and, but they <laughs> they uh, the like resounding message at the end of the season was we did it they didn't think that that we could like college football overcame so many obstacles. And that just that sentiment leaves a, a sour taste in my mouth because they didn't overcome the obstacles. They just chose not to care about them. And like I think baseball blazed a trail to get an entire season in without a bubble, without um and you know, even having fans in at the at the end of the season. And, you know, I think back to to um something uh uh Edward R. Murrow said about uh, Joe McCarthy like he didn't create that this exploit or this uh he didn't create this situation he just exploited it and that's sort of what happened with with baseball so it's i don't know it this is how how things are now like we've been our ability to um to accept and internalize you know a, a, something that that I don't think we would have stood or that I wouldn't have thought we would have stood for Twelve months ago, but like to the the willing to accept, willingness to accept the new normal um looking back on it is sort of surprising, but going through it, it just i you know i almost couldn't couldn't see any other way to approach it,
1: yeah, Alex, do you have any takes about Joseph
2: McCarthy?
0: We could talk about this we want to the... <laughs> do,
2: do a big red scare pod <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it is so weird, like sitting here like baseball. Sports in general, but I think baseball in particular is so good at that kind of misdirection and saying, and like setting the playing field and saying, well, it's a given that we're going to play baseball this year. The only question is, how safe is it going to be? How is it going to go? Right. And rarely is there ever that moment of kind of self reflection and saying, Maybe, is this where we should be starting? Like, is this our starting point? Just actually playing through the pandemic is there is there an alternative um but like once you get a month in you're kind of like all right well we're here right like it feels weird to be talking about the season that Cody Bellinger is having but he's having the season so like what is you know what is our responsibility there i don't know we've i mean we're going to have a whole uh, a whole other year to figure that out i guess and i don't i don't suspect that we will figure it out though like no. I,
1: We've been talking a lot on this podcast this year about the concept of just like feeling stuff in real time, and that's kind of what you're alluding to, Bauman. You're you're feeling so much pressure in real time of everything going on, all of the games going on, all of the positive tests that you're reading about. That it is just a classic desensitization to what whatever is happening. Yeah,
0: that's exactly right.
1: And you you don't you either just cease to do your job, or cease to watch baseball, or cease to be a fan of the sport. Or are you just like you make peace with it awkwardly on a podcast in a zoom chat with your friends from across the country. Right.
0: Yeah. There's an element to this being a, a no ethical consumption under capitalism kind of thing. Cause like if you're, cause that's an option. I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I didn't have a choice, but to cover baseball um, relatively straight up, but you know, I could have done it a different way. I could equip, you know, quit my job, but at the this, you know, instead in protest of of covering the sport that I, you know, that I uh that I'm troubled by. But, you know, how am I gonna exist in a society where that's they're just following the norm? You know, it's everybody is is continuing to operate as best they can because there's been an economic and governmental directive to to shift as much of the responsibility for the response or response to the pandemic onto individuals. Yeah. And You know, I don't see an easy way forward for individuals other than, you know, given those those conditions. But I think what the point you made about baseball operating from an an assumption of we're going to do this sport like it's that's a very um, I almost think it, it. it might've been unique to baseball among the major sports that, that went forward. Cause you look at something like football is we're going forward to prove to the virus that we're not scared or, you know, that like, it was like football he- is healthy, so fucked, healthy they, mindset. Yeah. Football is so fucked as a culture that they can't help, but frame everything. in in culture war. Yeah. Warrior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warrior, you know, protect lizard the shield and, terms. And, and, you know, baseball just sort and you know, hockey, uh, I think more so the NBA and the the WNBA were like trying to do this or trying to at least give the impression that they were doing this thoughtfully um, and to try, you know, see like, oh, you know, we don't know if we're going to come back. But if we do, it's going to be in this sterile environment and we're going to take everything extremely seriously and look at all the, uh, you know, baseball tried to, to spin this, but I don't think it was I don't really think anybody bought it. But, you know, the NBA like and the NHL, their bubbles we're actually a huge logistical undertaking uh, and we're broadly successful. Whereas baseball took sort of a middle path and just said, we're doing this. And within the, within the assumption that we're doing this, we're going to try to at least make it look like we're uh, like, it's as safe as possible. And so, you know, I thought, there were a couple markers that I thought, could bring down the season. And as soon as it didn't come down when the Marlins lost a week of their schedule like the the very first week I was like absolutely nothing this. is yeah.
1: stopping this. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And so you know my fear was like are they willing to kill people makes it sound purposeful but like to to allow, you know, have an indifference to to an actual cost of human life um are they willing to to cross that that bridge to have a baseball season? And there's no doubt in my mind that people died because of there being a baseball season last year. The, um, but it, you know, there were people who died within the baseball community of COVID. You know, scouts and retired players and and so on. And you know, nothing really changed. And so, you know, I think it would it might have taken a high profile player. And you know, absent that. You know, thankfully we didn't have that, but um, absent that there's, there's no smoking gun to point to, to say, maybe this was unsafe. Yeah. I think it's just, we're, it's almost disheart more disheartening. Like we know it's unsafe, but we don't care because we know we can get away with it.
2: Yeah. Well, it also like, I'm, and I could be wrong about this, but baseball felt kind of uniquely like, like their rationale was Very straightforward where it was like, we're going to lose money if we don't play baseball. So (laughs) we have to play at least some amount of baseball. And that was like at every step of the way, fans being in the stadium, um, how long the season is going to be. It like, I mean, I at least respect them for being honest about yeah. it and saying this is our number one priority about pushing this through. It wasn't necessarily about integrity of the sport or or anything like that. Like they treated themselves like the restaurant industry. Like they were almost like they
1: were the low-hanging fruit for the pandemic. It was like restaurants which operate at a loss for most months and then maybe one month out of the year operate at a, you know, at a plus and then it's like b- baseball, you know, or sports like as if that MLB was going to completely run out of money and that we were just supposed to take that assumption at face value. But that was like, you know, a lot of talk on Twitter about the big lie this past week or whatever. I don't want to get into that theory, but that was baseball's big lie that if we don't perpetuate this, if we don't have this season, then we're going to be so broke for the next decade that not even the fans are going to enjoy it because the owners are not going to be able to be financially viable. It's going to be a terrible product.
0: It's going to be a disaster for everybody. And they just expected everybody to believe that, which. Well, they expected it because everybody has believed it. They, right. They've been extremely successful in selling that lie for as long as I've been aware of baseball, like dating back to when I was a kid. Like, I, you know, I came of age during the. the World strike War and II, right? Was, yeah, I, yeah. I remember those <laughs> days. <laughs> um, and they, you know, and they talked to President Roosevelt, and President Roosevelt <laughs> said you know said you better keep playing so you know i remember where i was when when that happened no and that the, telegram
1: came over the wire right
0: yeah you know, i remember remember listening to the the st louis browns on the wireless when i was uh, <laughs> i completely lost my train of thought oh yeah they've been they've been saying like we need to keep player salaries down or we need public subsidies for for stadiums we need to keep raising ticket prices because the game is expensive and because we're operating at a loss and we could go out of business otherwise like you know why that's bullshit because it's been a hundred years since a major league baseball team went out of business it's been 120 years since a team um in what we would consider the biggest uh, like the national league and american league Uh, went out of business if you don't count the federal league it's been since like 1900 that that uh, a team's gone defunct and so they're they're so insulated from what even other business owners would consider to be financial consequences but i don't know i genuinely don't know why anybody buys that
1: Um, yeah yeah well it's hard when all you want to think about is the sport right and all you want to think about is it as an entertainment proposition, it's kind of hard to dive into the nitty gritty. Like, you know, Alex and I talked to Rob Maines a couple of weeks ago, actually at your behest. I don't think I mentioned that to the listeners. You suggested that we talk to Rob Maines. So thank you for that because it was a really good conversation about what owners do to perpetuate this lie that you're talking about that's been around since you were a kid and even before then. Um, but I do kind of want to spin it forward and and talk about how they use that lie to then create leverage in the labor landscape. So For listeners who weren't around last year at this time, we had a state of labor baseball podcast. Obviously, that's why I started this off as the second annual. But we kind of discussed about we kind of discussed mostly the late capitalization of baseball, with turning it into like you know McKinsey consulting firm, or we've moved away from large oil companies to now talking about analytics and um, you know optimization and that kind of thing. I want to ask you about how the last you think the last year has now positioned us in relation to when the cba cba is going to be up next year because now we have a weird last two years of data and experience for the labor landscape that we're building off of towards that cba so has anything changed because last year you were pretty bleak about <laughs> the cba <Yeah. laughs>
0: i mean everything has changed in the, the past year it's thrown you know it not it's thrown the american economy into chaos you know as much as um as much as the as much as capital has not actually suffered the consequences of the pandemic and has instead shifted those consequences on to working people, including rich working people like baseball players. But, you know, how many dozens or hundreds of, of uh, people who weren't drawing players salaries have been laid off this season um, just within the sport of baseball? And. So but it's created an environment where people like you and me who even if we're still working still feel the precarity of the the labor market when we're thinking about our relation to our own jobs like you know sh- can we ask for a raise can we go look out for you know go maybe look to find other employment and you you know look and see this mad max wasteland of of what was already a sick and dying economic system. And it's hard not to be, you know, it's, it's hard to be anything but frightened as, a, um, as a worker trying to advocate for yourself. So, you know, I definitely feel heading into last year, part of the reason that, that I was so pessimistic about there being a season in 2020 or in uh 2022, or there not being some kind of work stoppage was it felt like the players had finally caught up to the reality in terms of, realizing the the situation and you know there had been you know listen to to the way that that uh Garrett Cole talked about his contract or you know Jameson Tyon had given um interviews about this Colin McHugh, you know, guest of of this show has has spoken about this. Guys like whit Merrifield and Alex Gordon, I remember an article uh about that. Like players are are talking about the importance of Essentially, the labor theory of value—that like they generate the, um you know, they are the product. They ought to, des- they deserve um, to get their fair share. And there's, you know, I don't know that there's a major league baseball player who who's actually going to quote Marx and Engels chapter and verse. But they they ha- have Sean Doolittle's to under- not on a
1: contract right now, so you might be right.
0: <laughs> I, I yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not underestimating him, but uh, but they've they've internalized the the basics of that, and they've gotten. Good at expressing it, and I think that was the big hurdle. Maybe five years ago, where they couldn't articulate to the public why they deserved not to get, you know, um, why they deserved a fair share of the the uh, the value that they create with their with their labor, and so. I think they were, you know, they were really gearing up, you know, change there, and there have been changes within the the players' association. Like this, this was a, a wartime footing that that they had been setting up, and so, you know, I think they were definitely ready for a fight, and we saw the value of that organization, of that messaging, of that solidarity during the negotiations heading up towards this season. And I don't, you know, I don't know if we're going to get into this next season or get further into the CBA negotiations and what the tone and tenor of that's going to be, whether labor gets spooked, whether ownership gets spooked, um, you know, what the, what each side's appetite for a fight is going to be. I think the players are better organized now than they have been um, in maybe 25 years since the strike, but um, you know, we'll see what actually happens. And then there's the, the fact that, you know, we're looking at the the free agent market right now, which is incredibly, incredibly slow, but everybody who's signing is signing for about 10% more than I would have expected. And that's even, that's not even building in the tax for, you know, the pandemic tax where everybody's, you know, we could talk about how, how ownership in the league are dissembling about the actual economic state of the game. But the fact of the matter is they took in less money than they did, than they would have otherwise. Um, by playing that shortened season, wow! And owner so,
1: shill, owner shill, coming on this podcast and yeah, shilling well, for I'm owners. Well, I'm
0: trying to be, I'm trying to be even handed. I'm trying to see <laughs> both sides of the issue uh, for journalistic integrity reasons.
1: So, uh, but I, no, you're right. You, you're obviously right. Yeah, we you'd, believe you'd that. Be we trust. Tr- you'd have to be dumb to not think
0: that exactly. And so, and you'd have, yeah, you'd have to be ignorant not to expect there to be some sort of trickle down effect in spending. And so, we we thought we saw that with guys like Eddie Rosario getting uh getting non-tendered but the people who are signing are actually signing for pretty for pretty decent money so i you yeah know, i'm completely confused to be complete to be honest like i don't i really don't know what to make of this uh free agent market and add in the fact that the top couple free agents guys like Baron Rio muto are in sort of weird situations like this is not there's not as open and shut a a landing spot it's for somebody for them as opposed to like Derek Cole or Bryce Harper or Manny Machado in the past couple of seasons. So yeah, I, I really don't know what's gonna happen um for the next couple months in terms of free agent spending, but I think that's gonna dictate uh I think the the temperature of the the CBA negotiations.
2: Do you think at all that owners kind of pressed their luck, maybe a little? too far this season because uh, i mean obviously when you're the boss you're gonna say how far can i go right you know how much can i kind of take um but this season kind of seemed to to turn that on its head a little bit from like the fans perspective like i think this was maybe the first time where i saw like i mean you know twitter's not real life etc etc but like Vast majorities of just your average Joes on Twitter being like, What the hell are the Red Sox doing this year? Right. Like, I th- obviously they were going to use the pandemic as kind of an excuse to um, say, Screw you. You know, I'm going to get mine. Um, but it seems like things are kind of starting to shift a little bit, both as you mentioned, players being uh, better organized, but also in terms of public opinion. Like, it feels like the. There's like a crack in the wall. Finally, right where all of a sudden, I think fans are. And maybe this is anecdotal, but fans are just starting to be like, "Okay, screw this." Like, so what you're saying is that fans are realizing that hashtag this is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally. I mean, I'm curious, but I'm curious your your take on it, and if you if you read it any differently.
0: Yeah, I think there's a a, a growing realization that, and I think this is the, um, I think coverage has changed i think players rhetoric has changed about about this issue like i think we've all sort of gotten smarter as a baseball culture about the way that we talk about this and that's getting reflected in um in fan discourse also i think like there's a a generational shift a very slow one obviously but from like the dead-eyed irony poisoning of of gen x and the fuck you got mine attitude of of the boomers like we're getting more millennials and gen zers into the discourse and also more importantly into the like the players associate players association now is almost entirely millennials and gen zers who have if they're not seeing the the impact of late capitalism on their own lives they're seeing it on their friends and families lives they've grown up in a post banking crisis world essentially and so it just changes the way that you look at at stuff like that. So, with that said, I agree that you know what you'd see from Red Sox fans after the Betts trade, what you'd see from um, Cubs fans after this off season, from from Cleveland fans after the Lindor trade. That's it. You know, it illustrates an unwillingness to to accept the owner's word at face value when they've seen you know, they see how much money is coming into the sport and like, oh, we just can't afford to, to keep Francisco Lindor or Mookie or you know, they know that these are players who are, who are special, who you go out of your way to get, to keep in, in one uniform for their entire lives. And I think that fans, you know, even, even fans like us are, are willing to accept rebuilding and, you know, or even like a, a hard teardown. If the situation's right, but we they become more savvy about understanding when the situation's right and when the situation's not. But I think there's a limit to that because on a on a labor versus capital perspective, um, the the there was a, a difference in in understanding between like you know the people I talked to who were either hardcore baseball fans or work in baseball or cover it. Um, the way that we talked about the the negotiations between the players association and the league um, with regard to the restart the economic particulars of the restart there's a difference between the the way that we talked about and then i go back and talk to you know casual fans who essentially just watch the game on tv and don't consume anything about sports or you know or don't consume anything about the game apart from like what they see on the home their team's home broadcast they're like why do the players think they ought to be paid their entire season's wages for yeah. for 60 games and yeah. so that's that's a you know and i'd like probably yelled at a couple people who didn't deserve it because i was so frustrated with like <laughs> um so they're not listening to this show but but i might my might owe a couple friends an apology for uh for being a little brusque uh about this topic but i think it, but you have to you have to explain it, and you know, and every time, like I've gone back and explained, that's not actually what's going on. Like what you think is happening is not what's actually happening. Like they come around and like, oh, you know, this is messed up. You know, if the, if it was up to the players, we'd be playing again right now. Um, but that's it's just such a huge information gap, and it's it's uh, to the league's advantage to perpetuate that that information gap, or you know, that um, misunderstanding, and so. You know, it's one of those things I don't know how you get around it. You yeah. Know, I'm doing the best I can over here, <laughs> even as somebody with a platform, but yeah, but like it's we live in a, a society that's hostile to to the interests of labor. And it's it's that way on purpose and it's a huge obstacle. Like you can only chip away at the block.
1: And to your point, I mean, it's a huge obstacle and it's an obstacle that's getting more and more confusing the more that tech starts to step into this space, the more that baseball teams start to become real estate development arms of rich billionaires, the more that Rich billionaires continue to lobby Congress. I mean, I know they came out and said that the MLB pack is no longer going to be giving money. It's like, yeah, it's easy to say when you've already got the win. Like you already Also,
0: it's it's easy to say when all those owners can still donate to political causes. Individually. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Los Angeles Dodgers are not giving money to Nancy Pelosi, but maybe somebody else is. You know, like it's just very complicated. And, you know, we're doing our best here too, but like there has to be a certain appetite for wanting to listen. Cause I remember that sentiment as well. I remember people being like, I'm just so mad at the players and the owners for not being able to figure it out because I need baseball on my TV. We need baseball right now. This is the sport that America really needs right now to step into this entertainment gap while people are really struggling. They're at home more than they've ever been. And this could be a chance for baseball. It's like, it's it's just not that simple. And I if I say that, then we're gonna get into a 45 minute conversation about why it's not that simple. And that's hard. That's
0: hard for people. Yeah, you brought up the the Cubs like and and their real estate investment. Like they this is like two straight iterations of of the Cubs that have really explained had been like the exemplary baseball franchise. Where they, you know, they brought in the smart front office, they combined like the tanking and player development and innovative tactics they they brought in b- a bunch of smart people and also uh, uh, augmented that by shelling out for big name free agents as well. And like knowing when to push all their chips in and like that was the, that championship team was the model for how to build a championship team. Like that was the textbook. And now they are the textbook for how to fuck it up, uh, not to fuck it up, but to launder brand equity into becoming an entertainment and real estate concern primarily. And as long as the Cubs keep their lights on, as long as they still have, you know, that Coca-Cola level of, of, uh, of um, brand recognizability, there's a a specific business term that'll lose me, but you know what I mean? Like they, like this is the Chicago Cubs branded sports and entertainment network this is the chicago cubs branded gentrification of of chicago like this is the uh, you know spaceballs the the breakfast cereal and that's that's what these these teams exist as a peg to taking government subsidies to take in television revenue from across the league and cycle that back through to owners other business ventures and you know the braves are doing this too and the braves are the only team that's owned by a publicly traded company. So we see more of their books and the amount of money that's coming in and out of these um, coming in and and out of these enterprises is mind boggling. And so, you know, no, the Cubs don't care about winning anymore because w- winning baseball games is not the reason why Cubs Incorporated exists. Cubs Incorporated exists to, you know, build luxury condos and that's and to, you know, to take up cable, cable network carriage fees. And that's, that's why this company is operating. And so, you know, companies will operate to, to serve their end, which is to make money. You know, this is societal institutions operate the way they were designed to. And the the Cubs are not designed anymore to win baseball games as a a primary, primary outcome. They're they're just more important things to do. And, you know, I don't want to beat up on the Cubs. They're not the only team that's run like this, but they're, as as ever the exemplar yeah
1: yeah well i want to beat up on the cubs i I have a vendetta out for the cubs just how they've handled the last since 2014 i just it it just just throws me the wrong way nice enough to them
0: they'll trade chris bryant to the phillies for like (laughs) adam hazley and a couple single a guys yeah
1: right like um don't run your team like a like a consulting firm unless it means francisco lindor gets traded to the new york mets
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the Cubs are just kind of uniquely good at it. Right. And well-positioned. I mean, they, I mean, I don't, we shouldn't talk about the rickets ad nauseum on this podcast because that, that would just turn into a yelling match, but like they are quite savvy with this. And I'm sure that every other baseball team, given the opportunity would probably do that. I do. I I wonder if there are certain owners who kind of haven't given up on that idea of, of baseball just yet, you know, who are still kind of trying to toe the line and say, well, we've got to put some sort of, some sort of face forward. Michael's smiling over here. I'm smiling.
0: But- <laughs> cause, cause this is leading up to, I just did, um, uh, a hit on for all you kids out there with, uh, Jeff Paranostra and Jared Sadler last week and yeah I baby, talked just about leading
1: to Uncle Stevie let's go
0: yeah I talked about talked about Steve Cohen who I said like ought to be in jail as like but he's the <laughs> if he if, and I don't know, I'll repeat the line like he ought to be like in in the public stockade where people can throw vegetables at him and but failing that like I but this is the guy who's the one righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah right now like He's running a baseball team, at least for now, the way you ought to run a baseball team. Whereas if we're going to have this, have sports exist as a vanity project for for billionaires, then have fun with it. You know, yeah. go spend those billions of dollars or some portion of those billions of dollars to build a team that people are going to get excited about and enjoy watching and enjoy talking about. And You know, whatever else I have to to say about Steve Cohen, that's the way he's running the Mets right now. And, you know, that's the way that um,
1: are you surprised by that? Because I remember when Steve Cohen was in talks to buy the Mets and you were like, he's just going to run it like every he's just going to run it like Cleveland. He's just going to run it like Chicago. He's just going to run it like whoever Boston.
0: Yeah, I honestly, I am surprised by that. I'll, I'll say I'm surprised that he's this is the way he's running it so far. Because right. they're
2: waiting for the other shoe to drop that every year, day.
0: Yeah. I'm never going to trust it entirely. Yeah. There were, because there nor was that year, where, you. nor should you, where Jeffrey Loria was like, oh, we got the new ballpark. Like, we got the new uniforms. We're going to, gonna trade for 30 million. For Jose Reyes. And yeah, we've yeah. got, you know, signed. Uh, this didn't all happen the same season, but like, we're going to bring in Mark Burley and, you know, we've got, John Carlos Stanton and Hanley Ramirez, and like, we're actually going to make a run at it. And the team was bad the first year, and it, you know, he blew it all up, and same as it ever was. So, but with a couple billion dollars worth of Florida taxpayers' money in his pocket.
1: Yeah. Wow. Maybe we should just turn this into a Jeffrey Loria podcast for the rest of it. You want to talk about Jeffrey Loria? I want
0: to know because this is so there are a couple things that I was yelling about when they happened. Like, everybody was so. One of them is cord cutting. Everybody complained about the cable company and they all jumped off the the fucking bandwagon. The instant like there was Netflix and Hulu and like, yo, I just want to pay for the pay for the channels that I get. You know, I don't want to pay one hundred and twenty bucks if I want to watch sports and movies. But I also get like DIY network. And I'm like, motherfucker, the reason you only pay one hundred and twenty bucks a month for sports and movies is because the cable companies are packaging it together with DIY network. And the instant that stops happening, you're going to pay twice as much for a product that works half as well. and doesn't actually give you what you want. I was right about that. And I was right when they, when everybody was complaining about Tim McCarver being on the national baseball broadcast, I said it can always get worse. And they were (laughs) also excited when, when he retired and they replaced it with Harold Reynolds and they replaced Harold Reynolds with John Smoltz. And I said, It can always get worse. Don't assume that just because the thing you don't like is gone, that you're going to like the thing that replaces it. And everybody was flipping their shit. When Jeffrey Loria said he was going to sell the team, they're like, we can't imagine there being a worse owner in sports than Jeffrey Loria. And I'm like, guess fucking what? Guess exactly what (laughs) happened to the Marlins in this precise instance. They got a worse owner than Jeffrey Loria. So Forgive my skepticism that the one of the sleaziest characters to buy a major league sports franchise is in my lifetime replacing the Will Ponds that I didn't immediately assume that he was going to be the enlightened philosopher king who can't s- stop fucking posting that he's turned out to be. So <laughs> we'll see. Wow. It's going real well so far. This top marks.
1: that. 90-second rant needs to be put in fucking Was that only 90 seconds? It feels <laughs> like
0: I was talking about cable for a while.
1: I mean, you're 100% right, but I do think that there is an element of Steve Cohen coming in. There's an element of believability because if you keep citing the Dodgers, it's for a reason. Like They've continued to spend, they've continued to p- compete because they have built-in advantages of being in a large market and having a really good TV deal. And there's no reason that the Mets couldn't do that. And that's why Mets fans have been so catatonic and frankly fucking annoying for the last 20 years because it's been so tantalizing and so frustrating because there are examples of what they could have been doing all across the league. It's like the the thing that I wish that owners didn't just completely let vanish from the public discourse, but obviously understand why they let it vanish from the public discourse is lost leadership. And this is something that Rob, Rob Maynes talked a lot about. It's like, You can lose money year over year and still make a billion dollars at the end. And if you only lost $20 million every year that you own own the team, you still might make $850 million, which should be fine. It should be fine for you. And they've just let it lapse in the public consciousness to the point where people don't care that that's not fine for them.
0: And that's the, the way that it used to work, it feels like. There's a quote from... Terry Pagula, who owns the the Buffalo Sabres and Buffalo Bills, when he bought the Sabres, he's a natural gas magnate. Um, so he said, like, I want to spend whatever it takes to, to win a Stanley Cup. I mean, like, if you win a Stanley Cup in Buffalo, they'll make you king of the city. Like, they'll, it's, so, but that, it gives you cachet. What What he said was, I want to spend whatever it takes to make make the Sabers competitive. If I want to make money, I'll drill another uh, drill another natural gas well, and like bleak. <laughs> oh, on one hand, that's bleak. Like I, you know, wish that was coming from somebody who made their money in a different industry. <laughs> but that's the like that's the the way it ought to work. That like wealth gets you gets you a lot of stuff, but owning a sports team. Gets you stuff that you can't get with money alone and so like that used to be the kind of person who uh, who owned a, a sports franchise and they are you know we talk about teams crying poor you know until the, the cows come home like none of this is is hundred percent new but that used to be the model that you buy a sports team and it's a loss leader one to to launder your public you know to to get you social clout. Um, for for millionaires and billionaires um, to to burnish your brand, but also like you know you run it at like break even and then you sell it for a huge profit. And that's but the people who are rich enough to buy sports teams now don't want celebrity or they don't want uh, like the the good seats at the expensive restaurants or whatever whatever social perks owning a sports team gets you. the the point of having a billion dollars nowadays is no longer to buy shit with it. It's to turn that billion dollars into $2 billion and to send the leaderboard. And so now sports teams are being run in a, in a, in a manner commensurate with, with that outlook on life. And, you know, I wrote about this when, um, uh, during the, the Papa John's fall from, from grace of all things. Like I was just looking at like, this guy, you know, John Schnatter got canceled for saying the N-word on a, a call, you know, like got run out of his company. He's still got hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, why does he want to be famous? Why, you know, why doesn't he just want to be, uh, you know, just go do whatever he wants all the time for the rest of his life? And but no, you know, you want to make more money. Everything's got to get got to get bigger. And so. You know I think that that's a a growth mentality that's unique to to Western capitalism, but it's uh to to the peril of of baseball, the United States and the planet earth but that that's kind of always
2: what gets me right is like there are a million different ways to to double your money right you can walk on over to to Wall Street and find the guy on every corner who'll turn your one billion into two billion so like and this is something that Rob brought up when we talked with him. Right? Is fifty years ago, right, Charlie Finley owned a baseball team. To and it was largely like it. It made him money, right? Like when he was trying to exploit players' uh, labor, that's because the money was coming straight out of his pocket, right? And I feel like what owners have tried to do, maybe in the last decade is cloak that laundering, um, uh, of money under the guise of, well, you know, we still need to, this is still a business. It still needs to make money. Um, when in reality, no owner in baseball is using this as a primary form of income, right? It's, it is literally like a stock that increases in value over time. Um, and that's what always gets me, right? Is like, why baseball? Like, if you really wanted to make more money, I mean, I guess the answer is there's money in baseball. You can make a lot of it, right? But is that is that too simple of a read?
0: Well, it's a safe, it's a really safe investment. You know, Like, you see the way that franchise values have been skyrocketing. And they, there are so many built-in, like, it's a legal monopoly. It's protected by the government. It's It's in many ways... It, in many cases subsidized by the government there's a like if you run pizza hut and you you make shitty pizza for long enough people are going to start buying dominos and if you run the new york mets long for a long time and you make shitty baseball teams they're not going to you know your customers aren't going to become cincinnati reds fans there's a built-in um there's a built-in uh safety net for these investments that I don't know, exists anywhere else in major commerce in North America. So that, I mean, it's just an incredibly attractive investment. Like, and now they're realizing to the point that, that I guess Rob was making like, yeah, you can lose $20 million a year and still sell the team and make $800 million at the end of it. Or you could try to make a hundred million dollars a year and sell the team and you make a billion and a half. Like the value keeps going up um, without it being a, without your loss leader actually losing. And I think one thing you you mentioned, like, it doesn't seem like, and maybe Steve Cohen is this type of owner. Uh, you think of famous owners, like guys like Finley, guys like Bill Veck, um, guys like George Steinbrenner. Like, these people bought teams either because baseball was their business. Like, it's not like the bank owning a movie studio. It's a director owning a movie studio and he wants to do it. He wants to own it. Not, not only to make money and have power, but also to the, to make the product or it's rich people who want to do it for shits and giggles. And I don't know if like, we don't have enough shits and giggles owners anymore. Um, it's like, those are the people who really value the sport. Say what you will about George Steinbrenner, or Charlie Finley, or even somebody like Clark Griffith, like they wanted to, to actually make baseball the primary business. And so, you know, all, all other odious personal failings of those kind of people aside, like now we've got people who have different odious personal failings who actually don't, don't actually give a shit about the the sport. And, you know, the people who own the team now are not even bankers. They're people not to beat up on the rickets again, but they're people who inherited banks from their parents. And so, do they care about baseball? Yeah, but they also care about curtailing abortion rights in Nebraska. So like we're not gonna beef up beef up the Cubs bullpen because we're we gotta win the Nebraska State House. And so, you know, where their money goes reflects their their priorities. And their priority isn't baseball. So even if they're taking money out of the baseball team, it doesn't always go back in.
1: Yeah. And that's that's one of the tough parts though, because number one, that would be a challenge as it is that the people who own baseball teams are taking them from their parents now at this point, like we're now moving on generationally because then what do you do? But then, but then another challenge to that is that it seems like the league doesn't give a shit about what type of person buys a team.
0: They're making more money than ever. Why should they? Like uh, one thing that, that I actually do like about the Bud Selig legacy is that he let's go completely and for all time. Well, he completely and for all time demystified the commissioner's office. I think up until the, about the turn of the century, there was, um, you know, almost like a, a Kennesaw Mountain Landis idea of the Commissioner of Baseball that this was the person, the custodian for the sport. And Bud Selig, first of all, by ascending to that office after being an owner, uh, but also the way he he ran that office made it very clear: like you can't pretend that the commissioner is anything but the the owners avatar the avatar for the owner's business interests. yeah and so i think that that's is that a healthy way to do that job no but i think it's healthy that we can't pretend that it's anything other than what it is anymore so you know just so we could talk about it plainly
2: well and at least he was kind of honest about you know kind of wanting to grow the sport right i mean you can Mm -hmm. you can talk all you want about the the legacy of steroids in the game but people watched right like and obviously that's the kind of thing it like it works until it doesn't and until people find out but and it was like nakedly self-interestedly motivated because like you want to grow the sport so that you can continue to reap the the profits right and and yet at the same time fans are like well at least there's something there for me right where at this point you've kind of lost the the thread of wanting to grow the sport it feels like it's more just kind of like okay this is the situation we live in we got to make money from this somehow sorry, fans, you're going to have to suck it up and eat some of the shit at some
1: point. I actually don't think the league has lost that thread, though. Like, I think only the owners have, and therefore the league must do that by proxy, like, not grow the sport. Like, I think the league would love to grow the sport. I think MLB as a brand would love to be NFL as a brand. They'd love to be, like, this league, this shield, all of that shit. They'd love to take some of the elements from the NBA and the, you know, big player personalities that drive digitization of that sport. I think they would love to do that. I just think that they have too many obstacles in all of the ownership groups to to actually do it. And I think that that becomes really hard because they're afraid of making the players the face of the league in any meaningful way. And they've put that off for so long. And now there's other leagues way ahead of them on that front.
0: I actually don't. Th- I think the only league that's way ahead of them on that front is the NBA. Um, yeah, I think that they're. Dude, esports is up- ahead of
1: them, though. Like the only major league is ahead of them. But they have they are competing for eyeballs that are going other places. Not just among sports as well now,
0: that's true, and you know I think that there are lots of people within like in terms of like marketing or like an mlb network that that are doing a good job of promoting what what is like there are times when what when, when I watch baseball now and it's like it's as good as it's ever been, and um the
1: players are as fun as they've ever been, and
0: yeah, like god there was i thought about thought about this um when I was, when Mike Matheny lost the the Cardinals clubhouse, he was talking about like, you know, players can't handle being hazed now. And I'm thinking about like the kind of person that you see at the forefront of a major league clubhouse now versus the kind of person that was 20 years ago, like how much smarter they are now, like how much, how much more interesting, how much, uh, you know, better they are at like at making the game fun now versus 20 odd years ago. And, you know, that's, I, you know, I don't know where that where that came from, but like this is a really good generation of players in terms of of not just on field um, skill and talent and athleticism, but like knowing how to sell the product, being showman, you know, and in many cases like being people being the kind of people off the field that you want to root for. Um, but and I think that they're doing a good job of of selling that product. But the problem is like you sell that product and then the Cubs say, you know, we're going to pivot to real estate or the Red Sox say we're going to get rid of our best player in 50 years for not that much because we don't feel like paying him while, you know, our owners are conspicuously spending money all over the world and their other business ventures like it's it's hard to sell that when that undercurrent is going on underneath the surface, like, you know, it's hard to sell Bryce Harper to Phillies fans when Bryce Harper's talking about, you know, what the fuck you're, you're letting our best player walk for in free agency. Like he's like saying this while he's on the field at a a scrimmage, like wearing the Jersey of said player. it's, It's tough to, it's tough to, to sell that, you know, what's a really good on field product. A lot of the time and a really good off field product. A lot of the time, Well, when there's that constant threat of, but do the people who are are making this product actually care about it? And do they care about us as consumers? Like, do they care about giving us something worth spending our increasingly scarce time and money on? And uh, yeah, it's it's a shame. Like, it it does feel like we're wasting a lot of potential um, as a sport because the on-field product is not the primary concern anymore. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that owners are, at least my view of things is that owners aren't interested in giving players more of the, a a greater share of the public's attention. I get right. Like, like the more that players gain favor from fans and are kind of put front and center, obviously the more power that that gives them, I think at the negotiating table at shaping the narrative around the game. And I, my sense is that, you know, the more they boil things down to, well, this is a team, it's a team mentality or it's a, it's a business. And it's kind of this black box where you say, well, the, the product that we spit out onto the field is baseball. And that's what, That's just what we're we're trying to do at the end of the day. But if you give Bryce Harper that platform, if you say, let the kids play, and then you actually let them do it, like, I don't know, they start to lose control over how, what the narrative is uh, around baseball.
0: I think there's something to that, but I also don't think that baseball has ever been like football or hockey in that it's been like averse to individual stardom. Like, you, you know, you go back and think to think back to definitely like Babe Ruth didn't have his, you know, didn't there, you know, there are uh, stories about him going to Yankees ownership and asking for a raise and, and stuff and getting turned down. And, but like baseball has always had a, a long tradition of, of individual star power, um, which is definitely more in line with the modern NBA than, than it is with, uh, you know, the kind of interchangeable homunculus uh, apparatus that, that exists in other sports.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think that that's built into the sport itself, like in the, in the same way that the NBA is like, if you're a pitcher, you're the star. Like when Mm -hmm. every start you go out there, whether you're fucking Rick Purcello or Jacob deGrom, you're the star of the game because you're, the camera's going to be on you the most, as most possible. And if you're, you know, there are there are other challenges to the star being someone who's not a pitcher in the same way in football, there's challenges to making a star out of a wide receiver or, you know, whatever it might be. But I think that there are enough extremely charismatic human beings, individuals right now to overcome that. But I think that there is something to what you're saying, Alex, in that the name on the front of the jersey thing insulates them from some of the criticisms that we've had for them on this podcast. It's like, it allows them to continue to perpetuate Bauman what you said about they're not going to go become Cincinnati Reds fans well like in the NBA's context they might go become Cincinnati Reds fans like Cleveland fans might become Mets fans if it were as far along in the process as it was in the NBA and the NBA has a sort of collectiveness about the way that they think about the league. If the league is making money, we're going to rev share. All of the smaller market teams can quibble about certain things in the CBA and competitiveness, but in terms of money, they're all going to be okay. And I just don't think that MLB has that. Like they're not quite as aligned in the way that they think about their product.
0: It's no. And I think if they were more aligned, I mean, this probably comes with a salary cap and a salary floor. And that's something that, that the union has, uh, you know chosen a as a hill to die on and you know I definitely agree philosophically but I wonder if practically that might be a a sacrifice that if they would have been better off if in 1994 they had agreed to a cap peg to reg, uh, revenue um but that's that's a different discussion but the point about the nba like i don't know maybe it's just like where i work and how much that uh impacts the way i look at basketball particularly in relation to other sports but you know, like, I'm a lifelong Sixers fan, but at the same time, like, I don't like, I don't find myself liking or disliking other teams. I find myself disliking and disliking players. And oh, so, I thought you were going to
1: say liking or disliking the Sixers day to day.
0: I do like and dislike the Sixers day to day. Yes. Um, but, you know, like, I've hated the Lakers my entire life, but also I like LeBron James now that he's on the Lakers. I'm like, I don't know. I can't hate the Lakers just because lebron is there and i think i don't i don't know if baseball is ever going to be viewed that way but I, just on an anecdotal basis i think the number of people who, who look at baseball that way has gone from like a fraction of one percent to to some non-negligible number i like think
1: 10 maybe yeah I,
0: no I, I don't even know if it's that high but like i know people who, we feel like,
1: that way this podcast is a is a place that feels that way like i don't <laughs> hate teams anymore I dislike individual players. I dislike franchises that do shitty stuff. But if there is a player there that I love, and I love the sport of baseball in general, so if there's a player there that I love, I'll I'll support them. Like I just had a Mia Culpa on the Royals. After all this time, last week on the podcast, I admitted the Royals have done right by their fans and have honored that social contract of fandom for the last 10 years. So, you know, anything is possible here, Balma.
0: I just don't like where this is going. I Once every... Once every six months, I yell at Ben Lindbergh for trying to pitch the Yankees. as like a a likable team. I'm like, (laughs) you can't do that,
1: man. That's true. That's true.
0: We are not so post-structuralist that the Yankees are like a likable up and coming team. There are the bad guys. (laughs) And if anything, we have not degenerated as, as a society to the point where like just because we like Aaron Judge, which. You know, your mileage may vary. Yeah, your mileage may vary. But, uh, you know, I like watching Aaron Judge, but that doesn't mean he's the good guy. You know, I love Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole might be my favorite pitcher in baseball right now. He's the bad guy because he's on the Yankees now. Which like
2: is is probably good for the sport, like to have to have teams that you kind of feel that strongly about. Like, I think that that feeds some intrigue. I mean, it sucks to see the Yankees or the Cubs or the Cardinals on Sunday night baseball every week, but there's also a reason that they do it. Right. Because I think because they're both really easily liked and also really easily disliked. Right. But like, you know, them, you know, the franchises, you know, the Steinbrenners. And so in a sense, like, kind of having that vast public opinion um, actually be able to weigh in, I think matters probably helps them.
0: I also think that's a useful navigational peg for, for fans. Like, you know, if you're somebody who's, who, you know, doesn't know who DJ LeMayhew is, but like you check in with baseball, maybe once or twice a year, like, okay, I'm back. I'm going to watch Sunday night baseball. Or I'm going to watch the all-star game, or I'm going to watch a playoff game. Like, I'm back. What's going on? Oh, the Yankees are are still hateable? Okay, good. Like yeah. everything is as the way it is. Yeah. So
1: um, okay. Well, at the risk of even diving in deeper about why we hate the Yankees and hold personal grudges against them, I want to kind of land this plane a little bit. Bauman, what do you think is gonna happen in 2021? Rob Manfred just recently said that he wants teams to prepare for 162 games. We don't have clarity on a DH yet. We don't have clarity on whether they're going to continue with the same agreement that they had in twenty twenty one that will govern how this season plays out, but in reading the tea leaves and factoring in the fact that you know eighty five percent of free agents have not even signed with the team yet, yeah, how do you expect twenty twenty one to play out
0: the free agent thing is. Big. that's making it hard to to do any like team level prognostications like you know we know the teams that have already made big moves like the white Sox and that's padres we expect them to to take bigger steps forward um as far as structurally i expect no dh in 20 uh 2021 whatever year this is now um no dh i expect if not 162 games and close to it uh there's just so much lead time. There's going to be widespread vaccine distribution by at some point in the regular season. Um, you know, I, personally, I think it makes sense to maybe push spring training back a little bit or shorten spring training and uh, um, maybe move the season back a couple of weeks. I know there's some institutional resistance to that, uh, but you know, I think just getting it, anything that gives more time for, uh, for vaccine distribution before you start moving players and teams around, let alone letting fans into the park, I think would be would be not just like good societally, but I think it would be smart for baseball because theoretically, the farther into the future you go with the season, the bigger a chunk of the season can be played with more fans in the stands. And that means it benefits everybody um, if you can do that safely. So um but at the same time they've already shown a willingness to to do uh either empty or limited seating for fans um yeah maybe so we
1: should just play every every single game in Texas and all of them at Globe Life like an AAU tournament and just play them back to back to back 24/7
0: <laughs> so i you say that i think once <laughs> co- I'm, I'm going to do the other, the other on brand thing. We're going to start with talking about communism and end with talking about
1: college baseball. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If, if you have the opportunity at some point in the future, when the, when it's safe and when like people are actually going to sporting events, go to a college baseball tournament. Cause like that one venue carnival atmosphere, every, you know, four games a day kind of thing. It's, it's very very cool um, to to experience at a high level. I like ideally the College World Series is like the 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 pinnacle of that. But like I've done the Big Ten tournament, the SEC tournament's a huge um, huge thing. But anyway, like twenty twenty two, meet
1: did, us in Omaha, Bauman. It'll be us three. Just, know, just vibing.
0: I'll, I'll go. It's it's a fucking blast, man. Um. Anyway, so yeah. Uh. Split DH. Maybe a delay in the season. I think it would be smart. I don't think it's going to happen, or I don't know if it's going to happen. I should say. Um, what else should I say? 162 games or something there or thereabouts, uh, and the Yankees are going to be detestable again.
2: Our North Star.
0: I'd freak out. Like I'd, I'd have like I'd feel so lost if they.
1: <laughs> they got on the verge there for a second. Okay, Alex. Any any big old predictions from you, or should we should we wrap it up
2: here? I don't. I don't know that I can compete with uh, predicting the demise of cable and the existence of John Smoltz. So I might. I might have to put a put a period on this one. Um, but uh, do you have anything else? No, I do not. Michael Bauman, thank you so much for joining us, sir. We we
1: appreciate it very much. Thanks,
0: boys. Till I hope we have more fun stuff to talk about next year.
1: <laughs> oh, I I know we will. Okay, Bauman gonna Bauman. That was fun. That was good. Uh, Alex, this concludes our two week stretch of doing podcasts together in person. How are you feeling?
2: I, You know, it's it's weird. It's gonna be weird to go back to Zoom. You know, it's nice. I think we'll and, make it work. I think, I think
1: it'll be, we've done like, so
2: we've done like 100, almost 160 episodes of this podcast. How many do you think we've done in person? Like 30, 40, 50, maybe? Yeah, probably 50 at the most. We've largely, we were way ahead of the curve on this on this Zoom thing you know we, <laughs> we, were, really we well, were we were
1: we were well equipped making it work
2: <laughs> coastally
1: um we were doing ZenCaster. that's a tbt yeah uh if you enjoyed this pod thank you so much for listening all the way through uh if you have any takes about cable packages and cord cutting or joseph mccarthy please email us at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com we will make sure that the best emails get forwarded to our friend michael Bauman. Uh, we're tipping underscore pitches on twitter you can dm us there and we will respond hopefully quickly maybe not sometimes we don't see them um if you like what you heard subscribe follow rate review send all to of a that friend. good stuff send it to a friend it's 2021 we will continue to be doing wonderful conversations like this one um, and then if baseball ever comes back and is any kind of normal, we will probably still have conversations like this one because we don't necessarily talk about the on-field product all that much.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, if anything, there's more uncertainty than ever about what is coming down the pipeline this year, which realistically just means that's, that's more content for us. <laughs>
1: I'm going to make this a Frankie Landor podcast. Every, it's going to be a 10-minute update about how I'm feeling about Francisco every week. And I'm gonna monopod. I'm not gonna let you. I'm gonna mute you. Okay. For that ten minutes, and That's I'm just gonna.
2: W- uh, okay. Well, hot take. We're gonna I mean, start you know, by saying thank since, you
1: since to we our talked. father, Steve Cohen, <laughs> our son, Francisco Lindor,
2: and the Holy Spirit. David Wright's career. <laughs> <laughs> have your Have your feels changed at all? You know, has the Has the excitement waned? Are you still kind of riding the dizzying high? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I'm still kind of riding the dizzying high. <laughs> I think I will continue to ride the dizzying high. And should the Mets extend him before you hear this conversation? We're recording this on Thursday, January 14th. So um, I guess I should put that disclaimer at the very end so that people don't know the whole time. (laughs) But that's podcasting for you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We will be back next week. Hello,
0: everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week, see ya!